So I'm speaking with composer Michael A. Levine, uh, whose expansive career in film and TV composing has made him one of the most respected talents in the business. Uh, Michael has scored so, uh, so many varied projects, such as the hit series Cold Case, Drift in Manhattan starring Heather Graham, uh, Columbus Day starring Val Kilmer, and one of his latest projects is the fascinating and acclaimed documentary uh, Landfill Harmonic. Uh, Michael has also worked with amazing composers like Hans Zimmer and Harry Gregson Williams and Cliff Martinez uh, as an additional composer and an arranger, and uh, has worked with amazing musicians like Lenny Kravitz and, and Lord. And he's also the governor, uh, a governor uh, for the Television Academy. Michael, thank you so much for speaking today. My pleasure, sir. <laughs> so to start, I would love to know, uh, I guess, uh, a little bit about your background and your path to film composing. How did music kind of find its way into your life? And when did you decide, I guess, what was like the catalyst that decided to make you go on the path towards film and television composing? Well, those are, are, are two distinctly different events. Um, I got into the concept of being a professional musician. I had played music from the time I was four. I mean, I studied, started on piano and then started learning the violin, which became my principal instrument. Mm. Um, and, uh, I was actually a computer science major at the university of Wisconsin. And I, uh, in those days, if you were a computer science major, it meant you were in a room with bright fluorescent bulbs, and all the other human beings in the room were men with white shirts and pocket protectors. <laughs> and so I would go from that um, to my gig. Uh, I was playing in a band. And uh, I, I have to say I really enjoyed computer science. I, I, I liked the logic of it and all of that. But I would go from that setting to playing in a gig where people were dancing and women thought I was attractive. So this... <laughs> seemed obvious to me that this was a better life path. <laughs> so I went to the head of the music department, uh, Professor Crane at the University of Wisconsin, and told him about the things I had done. I had already, even at that point, I was 17, I had this pretty wacky career where I was, you know, I had I played classical violin, but I played in a rock band. I was the Jimi Hendrix of the violin is what the people describe me as. And, you know, it, it, turn it up to 10 with, you know, wah-wah pedals and delay and so forth. So I was, I was already kind of like torn in different directions. And I uh, said to, uh, I discussed this with Professor Crane and he said, young man, the University of Wisconsin music department is not a good place for a pop musician. Wow. <laughs> and he said the word pop in a way that was like, you know, the plosive could have knocked you off your chair. It was uh, like, it, it was sort of like, you know, uh, what was the, the famous thing that B Thomas Beecham said about um, uh, 12 tone music? He said, he was asked if he ever conducted it. And he said, no, but I once wiped some off my shoe. <laughs> um, it, it's, uh, it, it was, that was kind of the, the message. So I, I didn't know what to do. I actually dropped out of school for a little bit. And then I talked with um, the guy who really, became my mentor, uh, a guy named Marv Raven, who was a great um, a local uh, youth music teacher and so forth. And he said, well, have you thought of applying to Berkeley? And I said, in California? And he said, no, no, Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And so um, he actually ended up writing my recommendation, and it turned out to be a great fit for me. And I... Um, 
uh, have, you know, followed down this spiraling down path ever since. Um, now, the way I became a film composer is that um, after years of doing many, many other jobs, including initially playing music on the street, which I'm very proud of, uh, and then uh, becoming a company dance classes and then playing in various bands. I played in a country western band with Sean Colvin. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, I played in uh, I played in an Irish band for three years. Oh. Uh, I learned a lot of Irish fiddle tunes, which was great fun and Little did I know that that would turn out to be an important turning point in my life uh, later, um, which I'll get to. But um, I found my way into writing music for advertising, uh, which I uh, really enjoyed the eclecticism of it, but eventually got kind of uh, just uh, restless with the idea of there being this 30-second palette. Right. And I... I wanted to do something a little bigger and I scored a film for a friend um, and went oh this is cool and like we did it and it went straight to Sundance and I went oh this is easy you know <laughs> every mistake I've made in my career every turning point in my career has been starting with oh how hard can that be <laughs> and so uh, I moved to California and um, instantly found no work whatsoever um, and Actually, I did. I did have a job. I was writing songs for Walker, Texas Ranger, thanks to uh, 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 Chris Stone, who was one of the series composers who turned me on to the gig. And um, so I would uh, write these, you know, Dixie Chicks knockoffs and so forth. And it was actually, you know, hey, I was glad for the work. No, no complaints. Right. Um, and I mean, it was an extension of like, like when I was doing the advertising work, I would, I, my best known contribution to Western culture remains probably writing the Kit Kat, give me a break jingle. Absolutely. I, and I wanted to ask you about that later. We can maybe go a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But at any rate, um, so, uh, you know, time had passed and I wasn't really getting anywhere. And, um, I went to uh, a friend's gig and ended up standing next to Harry Gregson Williams. Now, we had a mutual friend, uh, and which was how we both ended up at the gig. Mm. Uh, and uh, we just got to chatting, and he said, um, you know, what do you do? And I mentioned that I would played in an Irish band, which seemed completely irrelevant. <laughs> right. But a couple of weeks later, he, meant, he called me up and he said, do you really play Irish fiddle? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, could you put together an Irish band? I said, no problem. When do you need it? Tomorrow. Oh, no problem. And I didn't know a single Irish musician in Los Angeles. <laughs> but I did own a telephone, and I figured I could call people. And I actually put together a really good Irish band. And um, we were doing pre-records for a film he was scoring called Veronica Guerin. Yes, yeah. And uh, it, it he was going to record the orchestra in the UK, but he, he needed to do these Irish band things here because he needed to do early on and uh we recorded it at remote control and uh we at the session hans showed up and uh he started chatting with me and he's and i pulled out my d my cd which i carried everywhere of my music and i said i realize this is coles to newcastle which i think he liked that kind of britishism of it right. hans may sound german but he's really british at heart <laughs> yeah um, 
So I handed this to him and I said, this may be Cole's New Castle, but, um, you know, here's some of my music. And I figured, you know, might have that and I could I could either throw it in the garbage or hand it to somebody. Um, three days later, I get a call. Hello, Michael. I just listened to your CD and it's fucking incredible. <laughs> Uh, and I and he says, um, of course, I just came from the uh, dentist, so I'm a little bit high. So, uh, you know, typical Hans, build you up and whack you down. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and so I ended up uh, joining his team and working on one of his films. Um, meanwhile, through people I met through Hans, I got this shot to score Cold Case. And... Um, I, I had my first spotting session with Jonathan Littman. Oh, I, I left out an important part of the story. While working on Veronica Guerin, there was one cue, it was the murder scene in the, in the film, that uh, Harry had scored three times and could not get uh, Jerry Bruckheimer to sign off on it. And uh -huh. he said, do you want, you want to take a crack at it? What do we got to lose? I said, sure. So I, I uh, scored it. Uh, they had tempted it with a piece of Hans's from Gladiator with this uh, deduk, and I went, "Oh, you know, what's the what's the Irish version of the deduk? The Illin pipes." Okay, so I had this idea for a fiddle thing that became an Illin pipes thing, and and so and it was for the murder scene it was the climactic scene of the film, and right. we bought it, and you know, one that was great. So fast forward a year, and I've got my first spotting session with Jonathan Littman, and uh, and he goes, um, who's the head of music at Bruckheimer, who I'm sure must have been a little skeptical about a guy who had never scored a major television show doing their show. And he said, you know, what this scene needs, this was the climax of the show, it was a murder scene. He says, uh, there's, um, there's something from one of uh, Jerry's films that uh, would be perfect for this. I said, what's the film? He said, it's not out yet. You haven't seen it. I said, what's the film? And he said, Veronica Guerin. And I said, what's the scene? And he looked at me funny and he goes, the murder scene. And I said, I think I can do something like that. <laughs> so that was, you know, we were off and running all because I played Irish fiddle. Wow. That is like, that's an amazing story. <laughs> but you know what's funny? I've talked with so many composers, Sean Callery, Cliff Martinez, so many others right. about it, how they got their break. And it's almost all equally absurd. And uh, so I, you know, in terms of advice for young composers and all that, because people are always asking that. Exactly. To keep trying stuff because there really is no front door. No one is going to say, oh, follow these steps and you will become a film composer. No, everyone's going to tell you to drop dead and go home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're really your, your way, your, the way in is a way that nobody ever thought of it. Uh, Lucas Cantor, who I produced the uh, Lord stuff with who used to be started out as an intern for me, then became my assistant. And, uh, Lucas is a phenomenal hustler and he got, he actually got us the Lord gig. And, um, he, um, he said, your way in, he says, you'll, it's like trying to get into this, this guarded castle that has these enormously high walls and, and manned by soldiers at every inch and the drawbridge is up and there's a moat. And you see this little hole crack in the wall and you swim across the moat and you creep in through that crack. And then you're on the inside and they go, welcome, welcome, welcome. And by the way, we, the first thing you gotta, gotta do is close up that crack so no one could pop 
possibly get in that way ever again. Right. It, it's, uh, I think there's some truth to that metaphor. There is, and I, it's what the, that's why I asked the question to, to literally everybody that I talk to, because it's different, different story every time, and it's never the same. And um, but yeah, just talk more about your work. You you did mention in your in your journey here that you did write uh, jingles, and you did work on what is one of the most well-known jingles of all time, the Kit Kat, uh, the Kit Kat jingle, and you worked with you know lyricist Ken Shoulderman. What was it like? I mean at the time creating what what goes into the process of creating something that's going to be used for advertising and of course you didn't know it was going to you know take off like that but what was behind because i know a lot of composers do start out in advertising and that's kind of works their way through that what was kind of that process like well i was already a, a sort of an established studio musician and i found my way into advertising by being a studio musician for advertising and interestingly enough as a keyboard player which i am only marginally competent but uh, I had a good arranger's ear, and so they would hire somebody good like Richard T. to play piano, and then they would hire me to do the synth parts. And the synth parts were always like, you know, pads and stabs and all that stuff. So really it was about getting the right color. Mm. Uh, so I kind of already knew the people involved, but I couldn't get arrested in terms of writing, which I knew I really wanted to do. I felt like such a fraud as a keyboard player because, you know, I, I, could, I could read one hand at a time. Um, but um, I went to all the major music houses in town. No one would hire me. And so then I started going directly to the advertising agencies. And that's how I got in. It was very interesting. I just sort of skipped the middle step. Mm. And um, one of the people that I encountered was a guy named Chris McHale, who was at Doyle Dane Burnback, who was the uh, music producer, the on-staff music producer there. And he had heard this rock opera that I written um, at Berkeley. And, and that's a long story in itself. But um, uh, so he thought that was cool and I would be cool because he'd heard this piece that had nothing to do with advertising. And um, uh, so he gave me a couple of little jobs first, I think. But then he called me up and he said, look, you know, you're still sort of earning your spurs here. We've got this this um, cannon fodder campaign is what they call it, or, mm -hmm. which another way of saying it is a kamikaze campaign. We, the agency has this campaign called Kit Kat Crazy that they've almost sold the client on, but they need something to put up against it that the client can say no to before they can say yes to the thing they've already invested. They had Phoebe Snow and Dr. John had recorded versions of it and they had, you know, demo uh, commercials and the whole thing, but they needed something to the client to say no to. And so they said, you know, I, you know, they gave me a pitiful amount of money and they gave me the junior most copywriter and Ken came in and he had, Ken Schuldman came in and he had like pages of lyrics. And I, I went through and I went, how about give me a break, break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Okay, done. So I got into the elevator uh -huh. and by, it was on the third floor. And by the time I got to the first floor, it was complete uh, in my head anyway. Yeah. And and so then I went home and I picked up a guitar and I'm the world's worst guitar player. And I called up Ken and I said, um, Ken, I've got something. Um, I, I, first of all, I'm, I, I'm a terrible guitar player, but I think this is more of a guitar player kind of piece. So I'm going to sing you this song. I really think it's working in the kind of spirit we discussed. Um, tell me what you think. And I played down the song and Ken goes, you're right. You really are a terrible guitar player. <laughs> first person to ever respond to the jingle. So here we are, what, 28 years later or something. 
And um, they, we made a little demo. We had no money for singers, so I sang it, and Chris and Joe Barone, who was uh, on the also on the staff at DDP, sang it, and uh, they tested it against their very expensive campaign, and it and it whipped it. And they were like, "Oh, well, they 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 came to the logical conclusion: there must have been something wrong with the test." Wow. So uh, they tested it again, and the same thing happened, but even more so. And so at that point, they went, well, I guess we're going to go with this campaign. And we did, um, we recorded uh, uh, the jingle, and uh, as a, almost as an afterthought, after we did the band, which was all these good musicians, but they, none of them were singers, we, the, the jingle singers were coming in to sing it. And Chris said, why don't we have the band sing it? And I said, okay. And so I, I actually sang lead, um, which turned out to be the luckiest accident of my life because I made far more as a singer than I did as a composer on it uh, uh, because they ended up going with the band version instead of the jingle singer version wow. because they sounded more authentic. Meanwhile, uh, Gil Goldstein, wonderful composer, pianist, uh, sort of a legend, um, he was the piano player on the date. And he had gone to the bathroom, and as he and in the time he was in the bathroom, we sang the song down, and we were done. We just everybody sings unison, and that was that. Right. It's a mess, and that's kind of what Chris wanted. And um, and so Gil didn't get on the vocal contract. He says it's the most expensive piss he ever took in his life. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, um, any rate. Um, uh, it was that was the it they it was not an, an, a campaign that they spent a lot of money on, but it kind of took off and uh, became part of the American subconscious. They had to build another Kit Kat factory to keep up with the demand. Wow, <laughs> it's amazing! It's amazing what a melody, what a tune will do. <laughs> so, yeah. So the answer is I had not a clue. <laughs> uh, well, it is a. Amazing. That's an amazing story as well. Um, I do want to talk also a little bit about, of course, uh, uh, the film that you composed, Landfill Harmonic, which is such an amazing documentary. And um, I mean, it's of course it's about this, you know, story of this kind of uh, small town of Paraguay, kind of living by this, you know, landfill, and these young students kind of put together an orchestra by literally building instruments out of trash. So. What about this story appealed to you as a musician yourself and as a storyteller and someone who is, you know, playing music on the streets? And where did the idea come from to approach the score, you know, using in the kind of in the same spirit as their instruments? Was that off the bat, like, oh, yeah, we're going to do it exactly like that? Or did it kind of come after watching it and experimenting a little bit? Well, you've asked kind of a couple of questions. First of all, what inspired me about it? Um, it, it is... Music is one of the oldest methods of human beings connecting with each other. Uh, we are these funny creatures that we pride ourselves on our individualism, but we get awfully lonely. Mm. And we really like to connect with each other, and we have developed this thing called language that is a really efficient way of communicating information. But if you really want to communicate how you feel, you just can't beat music. And uh, in, in many languages, the, 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 the word for music and dance is the same uh, word because there is something primal about how we as these tribal animals connect with each other. And so 
it was fascinating to me, this story of these kids who basically had the entire deck was stacked against them. They were poor kids. I mean, basically, they were going to work in the landfill or turn to a life of crime. I mean, there weren't, weren't a lot of other options available for them. And this uh, young uh, 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 environmental engineer, a guy named Fabio Chavez, came down and he was going to help them with their recycling and realized they knew more about recycling than he ever would know. And he said, well, while I'm at it, I'm this amateur musician. I think I'll form an orchestra. He had one problem, no money for instruments. So um, he went to one of the local craftsmen who was a guy who just sort of, you know, built like, you know, chairs out of recycled materials. And he said, could you build me a violin? He showed him what a violin looked like and he yeah. gave it a shot. And actually it didn't, Fabio plays a bunch of instruments, plays guitar and violin and various other things. And he went, oh, this is actually kind of playable. I mean, the entire intention of this was just to, so that these kids could have the experience of learning music because Fabio very much believed in the experience of studying music was, had this transcendental power that it was going, it was this liberating thing for these kids. And it took off like gangbusters and everybody wanted to be in the orchestra. And now suddenly, you know, uh, Cola, who was the man who was building the instruments was overwhelmed. And, you know, it, but they, they did the best they could between borrowed instruments and instruments donated and the ones that Cola built. And, um, it, uh, it's this tremendously uplifting story about the essence of which boils down to something Fabio actually says in the film. He says, just because you have nothing gives you no excuse to do nothing. Wow. Yeah. He very much believes in that. And, and, you know, it's like one of those up by the bootstraps stories that is the real deal. And some of these kids, the orchestra has been together now 10 years. Some of these kids have now graduated college. That was unthinkable 10 years ago. Right. So this is, it's, it really is a very inspiring story. Even the way that the documentary happened was ridiculous. Uh, Alejandra, the, the woman who sort of put up the money initially, uh, just went, she was from Paraguay and she wanted to do something that showed how great Paraguay was and found this story and they started shooting and they had no idea what the story was going to be and it ended up being interestingly enough because they put something online about they were trying to raise money to finish the documentary 60 minutes found out about it 60 minutes did a piece on it that ended up creating more interest and then one of the kids was a fan of megadeth uh, uh, and wrote them a letter and the bass player in Megadeth loved the story. And then they ended up doing gigs with Megadeth and then wow. and all this other stuff. Absolutely. Um, and you also, I wanted to ask you about, uh, star Wars detours. Uh, uh it's a Star Wars comedy series that was produced by Lucasfilm and Stupid Buddy Studios, you know, featuring Seth Green and Seth MacFarlane. And I thought the it's the theory is I thought it was almost canceled or postponed. Is it still and now is it coming back on track? Is it to be released? Uh, you know, to be honest, I don't know. Um, uh, if I had the ear of the Disney executives, I would say, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I ran into Seth Green. I said, is it coming out? He said, yeah, it's coming out. I just don't know when uh, or where. And, you know, so I, you know, Seth is an optimist. Uh, I, then I ran into Matt Seinreich. He was his partner. And, right. and he was like, yeah, yeah, well, Seth is, you know, Seth always puts a positive spin on everything. I have no idea. 
I, I certainly hope it comes out. It's it's great. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I'm I'm a I'm a Star Wars fan, but this is this is like the story that Seth told me was that he and um, and the other Seth, both the, the you know yeah. McFarlane and Green and Matt uh, Seinreich went to see uh, were called to a meeting from by George Lucas, and George Lucas. Um, they had both done parodies of uh, yeah. in Robot Chicken and in Family Guy, and they thought that their stuff was covered by uh, fair use. But you know, when George Lucas calls you, it's a little nerve wracking. And so they go in there, and he, and he sits them down. And he says, "So you guys think you're funny, huh?" And they look at each other, and he says, "Think you could be funny for me?" <laughs> and that's how it it all became. Uh, it all t- took place. Now McFarland didn't end up. Uh, getting involved in the writing, he was too busy. Right, but he does do the voice of the the emperor, and he's awesome. And uh, it's uh, it's it's a wonderful show. I have no idea what Disney, when or where it's going to air, if ever. I mean, it's possible they'll just kill it. But thirty nine episodes. This is not a trivial amount of work. And uh, Todd Grimes, who was the showrunner, did a, an awesome job. The the actors are great. Um, it's, it's funny, but I, I think that Disney is a little uncomfortable. This is speculative on my behalf right? because of the fact that it kind of goes after all of the sacred cows of, um, Star Wars, which of course Lucas thinks is funny. Um, but you know, Disney's like, Hey, this is our, this is our cash cow, you know? Exactly. (laughs) we don't want making people making fun of this. So I'm guessing that's what's going on. I don't know. Right. But I certainly hope it comes out and, and sooner rather than later. Uh, I, know. I mean, it, just from the trailer that's been out there and just looking, I mean, it had so much work to just, yeah, I, I hope it does come out. That'd be really awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. and, you know, starting in the trailer, there's that, so I'm, I, I, this won't violate my NDA. You know, there's, there's that joke about... Uh, uh, you know, Jar Jar Binks is saying to uh, uh, Dex, who's the guy with the four arms who works at a diner, and he says, uh, says why does everybody hate me? <laughs> and Dex says, uh, how much time you got? <laughs> yeah. well, that takes a thick skin from the man who created Jar Jar Binks to right. prove it. <laughs> to put his name on it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, but to, to wrap up, I, I would love to ask you kind of about your views on film music today and, and kind of pop culture. You've been involved with some great, you know, organizations and events, and you produced an amazing concert, uh, the Score concert that was a few years ago, which I attended and it was amazing. Um, do you see film and TV becoming a bigger part of pop culture these year, these days? You know, with kind of film and TV performances kind of taking off, or do you see it still as kind of this niche thing that? needs to grow still well of course i'm in favor of growth yeah. but it, it it look it's still a niche in comparison with beyonce or uh right. beyonce or uh, uh you know bruno mars or something but honestly there's more interest than there ever has been and there's great work being done i i think that film work has been it's been that's been understood for a while Television work is just beginning to find its footing in terms of popular culture. Uh, When we did the score concert two and a half years ago, uh, it was really the first concert of its kind. It was a concert of music written for television, and we had, uh, you know, Bear McCreary was involved, and Ramin Javadi, and uh, John Lunn, and and Alf 
Clausen and all these great composers, and they all conducted their own work. Well, Alf didn't conduct his own work, but he was there. And, um, you know, we had zombies come out of the audience and yeah, drag was... during Walking Dead. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. We had a lot of fun. So um, that was a hit, and that ended up, I think, sparking a number of other things that have happened since. There have been... Uh, uh, um, Ramin's just done a 28-city tour of Game of Thrones, right. as I understand it, and or he's about to do it. And, you know, that really, the genesis of that was from that concert. But um, there's many people, uh, you know, Matt Quayle, who used to work for me, right. who's now doing, Mr. doing half the shows on the air, yeah. Mr. Mr. Robot and uh, American Horror Story and Scream Queens and, you know, did the the uh, O.J. Simpson thing and right. you know so, so forth yeah. you know so um, uh, Mac uh, is uh, I he's got something that he's been doing with his uh, uh, stuff and so I mean there really is um, there's a growing and fairly recent interest in television music and I think that there are a number of reasons um, certainly one reason is technological. Televisions sound better than they used to, yeah. so there's more to hear. But um, I also think that there's something else, which is that with this explosion of, of formats, there's been an explosion of work done for television, and consequently, right. there's a lot more good work than there ever was. Absolutely. I mean, it's bad work, too, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but who cares about that? I mean, you know, 90, what was it? Uh, Theodore Sturgeon said 95% of everything is crap. <laughs> it's true. It's just that if, if, if everything is four times as big as it used to be, then there's four times as much good stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, you mentioned all these, and Jeff Beal is doing, I think, a House of Cards oh, yeah, yeah. concert. Jeff. Jeff is doing it. Um, and uh, so many popular series. I mean, you look at Netflix and Stranger Things, and that music has taken off into the stratosphere. Oh. So it definitely, absolutely, I mean, and, I'm, and we're enjoying it as, as listeners. So, but um, Michael... Thank you so much for your time tonight. It was so insightful and uh, such a pleasure to uh, to pick your brain for a little bit. Well, you mentioned Jeff, so I have to throw in one more <laughs> anecdote, which is my mentor was a guy named Michael Small who scored uh, the Parallax View, Clute, uh, Marathon Man. Right. Uh, he was uh, sort of the, the paranoid thriller master of the 70s. And um, we worked on a film called um, See You in the Morning, a Jeff Bridges film. And it was the first, my first real credit, I did some additional music for him on that film. Uh, and we met through advertising, interestingly enough. But lovely guy, really tremendously encouraging to me. Um, and uh, one of the things that he said to me when I moved to California, which he encouraged me to do, is he said, you know, when you're out there, if you ever need a, there's this great trumpet player, and, and you should hire him as a trumpet player. His name is Jeff Beal. <laughs> <laughs> so and and Jeff really is a great trumpet player. I mean, it, it's I'm always you know he and Mark Isham are good trumpet players as they are composers, and they're both outstanding composers. So you know they are they are my inspiration when it comes to playing the violin. Absolutely. Um, well, Michael, again, thank you so much for your time tonight. It was such a pleasure, such an honor, and uh, I'm so glad we got to to, to talk for a bit. Terrific. <laughs>